When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hey, it's Charles. Happy New Year. Here at MarketWatch, we've been thinking a lot about the stories that will dominate in 2023, and one of the biggest is housing. As mortgages skyrocketed last year, the dream of owning a home got further away for many Americans. But what if there was a way to band together? This week, we're replaying an episode from last year on new paths to home ownership. Hope you enjoy, and we'll be back with a new episode next week. I haven't had to hire a babysitter since I moved here. I haven't had to hire a dog sitter since I moved here. I have someone to water my plants. So we kind of have this built-in family that is just absolutely saving me money all the time. Welcome to The Best New Ideas in Money, a podcast from MarketWatch. I'm Stephanie Kelton. I'm an economist and a professor of economics and public policy at Stony Brook University. And I'm Charles Passy, a reporter at MarketWatch. Each week, we explore innovations in economics, finance, technology, and policy that rethink the way we live, work, spend, save, and invest. The American dream is defined by a lot of things, but perhaps the biggest is owning a home. And that's gotten increasingly difficult these days. The housing market is on fire. Home prices are rising at the fastest pace in 15 years. Home prices rose almost 19% in 2021. Our country is plagued by a basic math problem. Lots of people are lining up to buy houses, but there just isn't enough supply. At the end of last year, the number of homes for sale was at a record low. And a few weeks ago, the average rate on a conventional mortgage hit its highest level since 2011. Buyers can barely afford to blink or risk losing the house they want. It's not just buyers feeling the strain. Rents in some American cities have risen 40% just over the last year. And according to a Pew Research poll from October, almost half of all Americans think a lack of affordable housing where they live is a major problem. That's up 10 percentage points from 2018. Today, we're talking about some ideas that might help solve this complex problem. And with an issue this complicated, the solutions need a bit more explaining. Let me try to put this as simply as I can. That's Shane Phillips. He's an urban planner and policy expert. He manages the UCLA Lewis Center's housing initiative. So he's given the idea we're about to explain a lot of thought. The very short version is this, a public ownership rental option. Let's break that down. Okay, so imagine you have an apartment building. It's built or acquired with government loans, and it's run by local for-profit or non-profit property managers. The non-profit or public owner is sort of holding the debt, but you just move in like you normally would to any other apartment. You pay your rent, and a share of your rent is effectively paying off that debt, paying off that mortgage. That's basically how it works now, right? You pay rent, the landlord uses that money to pay off the building's mortgage. Now, in Shane Phillips' model, there is no private landlord. There's an owner, most likely a nonprofit. So some of the rent that's going towards that mortgage ends up back in the renter's pocket. 
you're getting both a share of the money you're spending on rent because you're paying down the mortgage, but you're also sort of over time building up a stake in the, in the property. Shane Phillips put some hypothetical numbers to this. So let's say you rent an apartment and you're paying $2,000 a month. That's money you'll never see again. If you'd bought the apartment instead, your mortgage might still be $2,000 a month, but over time, the money would mostly go toward your ownership equity. With Phillips' public ownership rental model, you'd get a share of that equity, minus the cost of operating and maintaining the apartment without having to buy it. My guess is the number might be closer to $300 a month, $500 a month, somewhere in that ballpark, but it's a lot better than what we have to offer now, which is nothing at all. Now, the rewards won't be as big as they might be if you own a home. There are greater risks being a homeowner than there are being a renter. And so there are greater rewards that tend to come with that as well. And so if you can pay off a home that you own in 30 years, it might take longer renting. But the nice thing about renting is you don't have to come up with a down payment. You know, if you move out when you're 20 or whatever, you're paying off, you're starting that payment from day one, not having to save up for 10 years or get your parents to give you money just so you can start on that pathway. You also sort of made the point that renting has its benefits, not the least of which is flexibility. Talk a little bit about why renting has distinct uh, benefits that we don't often appreciate. One way to think about this might be if we didn't give all of these tax subsidies, we allow people to write off the taxes on their mortgage interest payments, on their property taxes, if they're an owner and only if they're an owner. We effectively subsidize mortgages by the FHA guaranteeing them. That's basically why we have this 30-year fixed rate mortgage that didn't exist before the government said we're going to backstop all of these. So if you didn't have that and if homes weren't appreciating in value faster than inflation, they were just staying kind of the same level of affordability, some people would still want to own homes, but like a lot of people wouldn't. Like what would be the benefit? You you have a lot more responsibility and you're you're getting some equity there, so there's still certainly a benefit, but if it's not really appreciating that much and you now are the one responsible for all of the the maintenance and repairs, and I think really importantly, you're stuck there. So you know, I think that flexibility is really underappreciated for renting. This proposal isn't a fix for everyone. Others have kicked around the idea too, but Phillips' plan targets renters who can already afford market rate housing. The rent isn't subsidized, and that's an important detail. A lot of people in that sort of middle position where they don't make enough to own, but make too little to be eligible for subsidies, there's not a lot offered to them right now. And then at the same time, I wanted to make sure this was not something that was competing for funds that really do need to go toward, you know, very low income, low income, extremely low income households who even now are not getting as much as they need. The thing that is really interesting about this is that everybody understands that we have a big problem when it comes to affordable housing in this country. And so here's someone who's trying to think of a way to kind of try to solve that. And it definitely changes the way that we think about, you know, renting and home ownership in this creative way that sort of blends the two together. I mean, it's definitely a big idea. 
But, you know, is it an idea that's workable? And even Shane Phillips, when we talked, said he's still thinking about a lot of aspects of it. You know, I asked him, like, what if the renter moves out? Do they get some kind of check with a rebate or a, a recoupment of what they've put in? If the building is appreciated over time? There's a lot to work through in this system. There is the challenge here of the goal is not to sell the property and turn a profit in the long run for either the public or the nonprofit or the individual owner. And because you're not selling it, you can't cash out all of that money and give it to the people who have kind of built up a stake over time. It has to be more of a sort of gradual thing. It might be something more like a dividend where it's paying out on a monthly or annual basis. And if you've only lived there for two years, it might be a very small amount, you know, less than $100 a month. But if you've been paying rent in a shared equity rental housing building and been paying into them for 30 or more years, you might be getting so much back at that point that it's just covering your entire rent. At a certain point, that would be the goal. You know, sometimes you hear ideas like this and you think, this could never happen. But, you know, it's not a, this isn't something I think that would be proposed at the federal level. These are kind of local solutions. And so, you know, if you think it's just a pipe dream or maybe you're more optimistic and you think maybe this could really happen. I guess if if you have a mayor or city council or maybe a state legislature that's under a lot of pressure to do something about affordable housing in their communities, maybe this is the kind of thing you might see somebody actually implement. The challenge is just how exactly does that work? What does it take in terms of government policy, in terms of maybe some kind of subsidies or low interest loans, other things to actually make it work that way? Because obviously that's not how things work today. I do want to make the general point that really the central reason that homeownership is increasingly inaccessible is we just haven't built enough homes and homes are so scarce and they keep rising and rising and rising in value faster than inflation and wages. And that's just unsustainable. Like it can't keep going on this way forever because at a certain point people will be paying more than 100% of their income on housing and that's not realistic. As we mentioned at the top of the show, despite rising prices, buying a home still seems to be the cornerstone of the American dream. A problem we have in this country is that on the one hand, we celebrate the wealth building potential of homeownership. But on the other hand, we express a lot of concern, I think rightly, over the rising price of housing. But those are two sides of the same coin. And we rely really heavily on home equity to fill many of the gaps that are created by not having a strong welfare state. And we've basically internalized this idea that the answer to housing security is to make sure everyone can eventually own their own home and build wealth through that. If you think about it, for housing to be a really good investment, it sort of needs to appreciate in value faster than inflation or wages. But if housing is appreciating faster than inflation and wages, then it's going to be harder and harder for each subsequent generation to afford housing. Coming up, what are some other novel housing ideas that could save you money? Find out after the break. WSJ Special Access gives you a front row seat to some of the Wall Street Journal's most exciting content, like The Quirkier Side of Life, a new series that features the fun, surprising stories our reporters come across. 
the chief executive walks 10,000 barefoot steps every day. He recalls stepping on a bee, which put him off earthing for a couple of days, but he got back to it. Check out the quirkier side of life on WSJ Special Access, only for WSJ subscribers. Join the Wall Street Journal at the Future of Everything Festival on May 21st to 23rd in New York City, where diverse global newsmakers share unique perspectives on navigating a changing world. Immerse yourself in live performances, explore pioneering technologies, and indulge in the city's inventive culinary scene. As a podcast listener, enjoy 20% off current ticket rates with code PODCAST. Visit wsj.com slash f-o-e-f podcast to secure your spot. Welcome back to the best new ideas in money. Before the break, we talked about a radical new proposal that rethinks both renting and home ownership. That's still entirely hypothetical at this point. It's just an idea. But it made us curious about what creative and affordable alternatives to traditional models people are actually doing right now. My name is Holly Harper, and I am an entrepreneur and a management consultant. And I live in Tacoma Park, Maryland, in a four-unit co-housing building that I bought with two other single moms. Co-housing is basically a small, intentional community of private homes, usually clustered around a shared space. Holly's story started during the pandemic lockdown, when she and her friend Heron were both looking to buy. We both coincidentally contacted our realtors at the same time and then were chatting about that and thought, well, we live in the D.C. area and it's really expensive, so we could contact our individual realtors and live in a shoebox or a condo. But why wouldn't we look at a duplex? But instead of a duplex, they found what Holly Harper calls the perfect four-unit building. It was originally an apartment building. And so we all have our own entrances, our own kitchens, bathrooms, living space. And Heron and I thought, oh, we'll just rent out the other two and have some extra income. And then we realized when we posted the rental listing in the neighborhood that this woman, Leandra, who reached out to us, she was the same as us. You know, she's like, I'm also a single mom, but I could never afford 20% down on a property after my divorce. I don't have that type of income. I don't have that type of savings, but I want to live like this. And I used to walk by that house every day. So we didn't know her at all. And she moved in and we just said, you know, if after six months, this is working, then we'd love to provide you that passive home ownership too, because We think it's so, so important for single people or really any people to have their name on a mortgage at some point because it's such a huge asset and it's a path to, you know, generational wealth and stability. Leandra bought her unit in the building. Every month she pays off a share of what would have been her down payment, plus a share of the interest on the mortgage of the whole building. Each family has their own private apartment in the building with some shared common areas, including hallways and outdoor space. All of us are single people, some single parents, some single people who could never have otherwise afforded to buy a house. So between us, we have five kids and three dogs. The women have created a community together. 
They help each other with everything from funding new business ventures to the kind of stuff that makes up everyday life, like babysitting and jump-starting a car. The kids are like cousins. The women in the house, we relate to each other a lot like sisters. We share meals all the time, special occasions, birthdays. We have a fire pit out back. You know, there's a luxury of being able to say like, hey, I'm going for a run. My kid is, you know, hanging out watching TV with your kid. I'll be back. So we kind of have this built-in family that is just absolutely saving me money all the time. I haven't had to hire a babysitter since I moved here. I haven't had to hire a dog sitter since I moved here. I have someone to water my plants, check in on things. You know, anytime I'm gone, I'll tell the neighbors and they can, if they have family visiting, they can use my space. So the kind of day-to-day -day financial stuff has been really awesome. There's just so many perks to having your family here, but at the same time, we're not family. And that reality means we don't take each other for granted. We really do respect each other, knowing that like, you know, we chose this. And the potential for co-living isn't just limited to situations like Holly Harper's. Startups are also getting in on the action. It's fundamentally about density. People who live in co-living apartments are generally sacrificing some private space for access to affordability and better or nicer shared spaces. Brad Hargraves is the founder and CEO of Common. His company designs and manages about 7,000 apartment units in the U.S. Common works with developers and real estate lenders in 15 cities to build apartments specifically with roommates in mind. Hargraves says that on average, a co-living unit will rent for 20% less than a comparable studio apartment in the same neighborhood. So the best way to think about it are apartments with multiple bedrooms, many cases with, with private bathrooms, with larger bedrooms than you would find in a typical apartment that open into shared living areas or shared common areas. And by doing that, people are able to achieve much lower rents. This type of living arrangement is one way people are trying to combat rising rents. When we started Common, affordability was the first and primary pillar of our value proposition. That is, it really is about people who are struggling to pay the rent, often who are working, maybe not their first job, maybe their second or their third job, but they're struggling in that they're seeing apartments, studios, one bedrooms, in the cities and the neighborhoods in which they want to live, that would cost them more than 30% of their take-home income, in some cases more than 50% of their take-home income, which would make them severely rent burdened. There are more and more Americans that are facing that situation, particularly in expensive cities. And particularly, this is all the more relevant given the rent increases we've seen across the country over the past 12 months. Maybe, as housing costs continue to rise, we'll see more people experiment with different models of home ownership, the way Holly Harper did. The key thing in our model is to find the community first. And so find the person that you wouldn't mind sharing a wall with. You know, a lot of times when you just buy an apartment, you don't have control over your neighbors. So you want to find that person and you want to make sure that you have kind of the same values and you're committed to the same things, right? You make a list of how do you approach maintenance? You know, what kind of work do you like to do? do you, are you going to take care of the yard? Well, how do we resolve conflict? And you just kind of start those conversations. At the same time, you go as a group to the mortgage company and figure out how much you can afford. And then 
you find a realtor and then you kind of marry all of those things together. Of course, that process is easier said than done. You still have to be able to pay for your mortgage. But for Holly Harper, it did get her that piece of the American dream. It's just so harmonious. Everyone who comes to stay with us is like, I want to live here too. Thanks for listening to the best new ideas in money. You can subscribe to the show on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. If you like the show, please leave us a review. As you probably already know, it's the single best way other listeners can discover us. If you have ideas for future episodes or a question you'd like us to answer, drop us a line at bestnewideasinmoney at marketwatch.com. Thanks to Shane Phillips, Holly Harper, Brad Hargraves, Anne Sigismund, and Gilles Doronton. To learn more about co-living, head to marketwatch.com. I'm Stephanie Kelton. And I'm Charles Passy. The Best New Ideas in Money is a podcast for MarketWatch produced by Best Case Studios. Suzanne Myers is our producer. Our associate producer is Hannah Leibowitz-Lockard. The executive producer for Best Case Studios is Adam Pinkus. For MarketWatch, Melissa Haggerty is the executive producer and the associate producer is Katie Ferguson. Jeremy Binks is our news editor. This episode was mixed by Katie Ferguson. The Best New Ideas in Money theme was composed by Sam Retzer. Stephanie Kelton is an economist and professor of economics and public policy at Stony Brook University and not part of the MarketWatch newsroom. We'll be back next week with another new idea.